Hi, my name is Steve Douglas, and you're listening to Beyond the Box. Hi, I'm Rayburn Johnson. And I'm Steve Sensenick. And this is Beyond the Box. Here's your invitation to explore life outside the box of institutional religion. This is a place where there are no walls to restrict our search for truth as we embrace the ambiguity of defining our life in Christ. So unbuckle your seatbelt, recline your chair, throw caution to the wind, and get ready for the ride that is Beyond the the Box. Great to be back with you guys today on Beyond the Box. Really excited about the conversation we have in store for you today. We're going to be talking with Kevin Miller, who is the writer and director of the upcoming documentary, Hellbound, which will be hitting theaters around September of 2012. I think you guys are really going to get excited about this film as you find out more about it. Kevin lives in Abbotsford, British Columbia, and he's friends with Brad Jerzak and actually helped him edit the book, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, which I know a lot of you are going to be familiar with, either by reading the book or by listening to the podcast that we did several months back with Brad Jerzak. Kevin is just a super cool guy. I've really enjoyed getting to know him. Gosh, I, I, I could sit and talk with him for hours. He's just really easy to talk to and full of all sorts of just, gosh, he, he just seems to make so many great connections for me. There's so many things that go on in my mind, so many different ideas that seem sometimes to be isolated from each other. And Kevin really helped to tie tie together some ideas for me, not only in this podcast, but in some of the conversations we've been having and some of the resources he's been pointing me to. And I tell you, you guys have got to check out his website, hellboundthemovie.com. Hellboundthemovie.com. Not only do you, do you get to see the trailer and get to find out more about the film, but they have uh, they've put on there a resource section that has all sorts of resources, whether it be books or articles or websites or podcasts, all of these different things that you can get access to to learn more about the idea of hell. So great stuff. I'm going to get out of the way here and let's get right into the conversation with Kevin Miller. I hope you guys enjoy it. Well, everybody, I want to welcome you back to Beyond the Box. I am really excited to introduce you to someone that you're probably not very familiar with at this point, but you're probably going to be in the coming months. His name's Kevin Miller. Um, he lives in... Uh, Kevin, what part of Canada is it again? I'm drawing a blank. I live in the city of Abbotsford, British Columbia. Abbotsford. Abbotsford. A lot of you guys that are familiar with Brad Jerzak and have grown to love Brad Jerzak are going to realize that's the same place that Brad's from, and there's a reason for that. (laughs) Brad is actually the one who turned me on to um, talking to Kevin, and I am just really excited. Kevin is actually the writer and the director of the documentary that's coming out this fall entitled Hellbound? Which is kind of a... um, I guess just an overview of the idea of hell and the debate that's going on today about hell. Uh, Kevin, really excited to have you here. I'm really looking forward to this conversation and have been for some time. Oh, thank you. It's uh, it's great to be here. I'm I'm excited about it as well. Kevin, tell our listeners a little bit about your history, how you got into filmmaking, maybe some of the work you've done in the past, and and uh, 
kind of how you came about this project. Mm-hmm. Well, I've I've always uh, I've I've always been fascinated by film. I, I think primarily I've always seen myself as a writer, and primarily I've always worked as a writer. Um, uh, worked in you know journalism and then book publishing, and eventually made my way into screenwriting. And uh, Hellbound is my first time actually. I'm still holding taking the title on hesitantly, filmmaker. Actually, you know, helming a project. Um, so I've worked on a number of different films, primarily feature-length documentaries. So probably the one I'm most well-known for is is called Expelled, No Intelligence Allowed with Ben Stein. It was a film that really looked at the debate over um, intelligent design. Uh, but I've done a number of other films. Um, uh, one is called Spoiled. It takes a counterintuitive look at fossil fuels, our relationship to fossil fuels. Uh, another film uh, that came out last year is called Sex Plus Money, which looks at the issue of uh, uh, sex trafficking with the United States. Why is it happening? What can we do about it? And that sort of thing. So I'm kind of getting into I'm, – it's not really something I intended, but I, I'm getting into a position of working on a lot of films that tend to push people's buttons, that tend to just take an issue that's somewhat controversial and try and get to the bottom of it. And I think for me just naturally – I gravitate toward that type of thing, just even as a reader. Um, if I'm in a bookstore, I'm just always fascinated by the books that are dealing with the big ideas that are shaping the culture or the fact that maybe there's there's a phenomenon going on that is driving a lot of, um, you know, what we're seeing on the surface of the culture, but what's really going on. And not I'm not talking about conspiracies at all. I'm talking about more, <laughs> you know, kind of um, what's really driving human behavior. For me, that's that's the really fascinating thing. And so film yeah. is, I guess, just one, and especially documentaries, is 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 a way to try and move beyond sort of the surface discussion to find out what's what's really happening behind the scenes. One thing I love about the whole idea of, you know, making a documentary, especially on this topic, is as I've been reading a lot of different books on the topic, I realize more and more that, you know, most of the general public who have just kind of a cursory interest in it and maybe don't realize that, um how much their view of hell is actually shaping their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, it gives, you're giving people an opportunity to in two hours kind of get an encapsulated version of what might've taken them, you know, years, the, you know, as far as all of these different perspectives on hell and all of these different scholars and teachers and pastors and, you know, people on the street. Uh, I just love the idea that in two hours, somebody can come in a theater and get a really good, um, introduction to the whole debate. I just think that's, I think it's brilliant. Really excited about it. I think the word introduction is, is a good one because, um, a documentary can only do so much. And really, we're probably going to be closer to 90 minutes. And so you have to make some choices. You have to say, really, this film can only say one thing. So what is the one thing that this film is ultimately saying? And, um, so that's, you know, um, that, that's one of the first decisions you have to make. And sometimes you don't even know early on in the process exactly what that one thing is. You might have an intuition of it, but it's something that will tend to emerge as you, you move further down the line with the project. But yeah, I'm hoping what this film can do is something that, um, say something like Rob Bell's book, Love Wins. I think it was really, really effective at starting a discussion, but ultimately it's one guy's point of view, um, where even though this documentary is going to be Kevin Miller's point of view, I can bring people like Mark Driscoll to the table. I can, you know, bring uh, Brian McLaren to the table. I can bring all these different folks who 
are involved in this discussion and we can hold them up alongside and put them in dialogue with each other for people. So maybe somebody's not going to go sit down and read, uh, you know, all of these. I mean, man, if you look at the reading list on our website, dozens <laughs> and dozens, and I keep getting books. Um, so people aren't going to go read all this stuff necessarily. They don't have time, but at least the film, they can come in and for 90 minutes, they can be immersed in the discussion but not just – this isn't a film that's just going to be like a, a theological debate. I, I mean I think that films ultimately need to deliver an emotional experience. And so that's that's uh, a big part of the, you know, the film experience because I think that this is something I really learned. Like one of, There's so many different people who, who have shaped my thinking on this topic um, over the last year. I've been working on it almost a year and a half, uh, one of them being uh, Richard Beck who runs the blog um, – experimentaltheology.com. It's just a fantastic blog. He's a psychologist and he's written a number of different things. But um, the whole notion of um, how do we form beliefs? Because I think that's really at the heart of the hell debate is we have this position on hell. Well, where did it come from? And mm. I think a lot of us tend to think that we're these Spock-like creatures who arrive at these theological positions through some sort of a rational, cold, rational process, you know, and, and I think that's about the, if only, if only, <laughs> I think that's, that's like the furthest thing from the truth. And I, you know, myself is the number one example. And, you know, so I think being aware of that's really important. But again, when it comes to a film, oftentimes what the films I work on are trying to do is to change people's minds or at least introduce them to a new way of thinking. So the way I would describe it is, what a film is trying to offer is a corrective emotional experience because the path into your position was an emotional path. So I believe that the path out of the position into a different way of looking at the world is probably going to be an emotional path as well. So there's going to be that component to the film. Now, somebody might say, well, you, it sounds like you're describing a propaganda. Because <laughs> <And, laughs> isn't that what propaganda does? You know, it stimulates your emotions in order to make you susceptible to a message. Well, I, I think the difference between propaganda and art would be that that uh, propaganda gains its power by only showing you one side of an issue. And I think that art is is willing to dare to explore all sides. And and that's what we're trying to do in this film. So I'm I, I would never call myself an objective person. I don't think anyone can be objective. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think that's a, that's the myth. And, and I think that's a, a false target that people criticize filmmakers for not hitting and so this film's going to have a very strong point of view but that doesn't mean we're going to ignore contrary points of view and yeah. so i think that's the important is to know what is you know again I'll, just one more thing i was going to say I, i'm quoting somebody i think maybe it's steven sizer who was in my documentary uh, documentary i co-wrote called with god on our side and he said that um having a bias isn't a problem he says it's being aware of your bias and being able mm. to defend it that's the key yeah so yeah. that's where I sit. There's so much truth to that. You know, I think that um, personal for me personally, that's been one thing that uh, the whole idea of postmodernism and this whole emerging church conversation, that's been one of the really important things for me is that I've come away realizing that while while we can believe in absolute truth, we can come to the conclusion that none of us hold to it absolutely mm -hmm. and that we don't have, you know, that, that we really don't have an objective point of view. And therefore we really do need to listen to other people because like you said, it's, it amazes me, especially growing up in the American South in the heart of the Bible belt, just how entrenched 
uh, your theology is in a culture mm -hmm. rather than, even though we put it in the name of, um, you know, biblical theology so many times, we use that word biblical to kind of override everything else that's an influence in our, in our lives, mm -hmm. which really does come down to culture and, and the persuasion that we happen to have been born in and et cetera. So I think there's huge value in what you're doing and getting, you know, all of these different perspectives, even if you've got a strong point of view, getting these people around the table and actually hearing what they're saying and letting them speak on their own terms, I think is hugely valuable with what you're saying. Um, just, you kinda, you kinda, um, introduced us a little bit to some of the different people that are going to be on here. Mark Driscoll, Brian McLaren, could you throw out a few other names that maybe you're going to, that, that we're possibly going to see on this just to kind of get people uh, revved up to figure out who's going to be in this thing. Oh yeah. Well, I mean, if you look at our trailer, you're going to see Paul Young in there. Um, uh, Kevin DeYoung um, is, as well. Uh, we've interviewed uh, Justin Taylor. Actually, I think the trailer opens with Robert McKee. Robert McKee is a interesting character because he doesn't register in the hell debate. Um, but I'm a screenwriter primarily. One of my, you know, mentors from a distance has been Robert McKee. And he, for me, the whole notion of uh, narrative is, is really fascinating. And so we, you know, did an interview with him, even though he's an atheist, he's a former Catholic, was raised as a Catholic, but he's now an atheist. And so getting his perspective from kind of a, he's really an expert in the role that story plays in culture. So looking at mythology and, and uh, again, trying to hold up the Christian narrative alongside other religious narratives and say, well, uh, hell obviously has a function in this narrative. So what is the function of hell? And so you're getting more the psychological side of things. So yeah, McKee's in there. Um, we interviewed uh, uh, Sharon Baker, who's uh, the author of the book Raising Hell, R-A-Z-I-N-G. Of course, we also interviewed Michael Harden, who uh, is just, uh, you know, if you, anyone's listened to his the podcast on here, you know he's just uh, a very dynamic and fascinating individual. Frank Schaefer, uh, Frank Schaefer. After we were done our interview with him, we were, we all kind of looked at each other and said, uh, "I think we're renaming this film the Frank Schaefer Show." <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm just I, I am just about uh, just a few minutes away from finishing his. Uh, I guess it's kind of a, a memoir. Uh, crazy for God. So yep. yeah, <laughs> very fascinating book. He's a fascinating individual. Oh yeah. He's actually touring right now doing a speaking tour. So I encourage anyone to go out and hear what he has to say. He just, he had another book come out called sex mom and God. Um, mm -hmm. Great title. <laughs> and uh, it's uh, I, I think it, 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 it's a fantastic book as well. And, and what he, he's such an interesting individual because of his role at really being the, at the heart of the religious right in America. And then eventually reaching a point where, he just turned his back on it all. And, so, you know, he's just, in a sense, been recovering from that experience over the last couple of decades and just really giving a perspective on it. So I found his perspective on people are going to find his perspective uh, pretty difficult to swallow. I think some evangelicals are going to. But I just think he shoots from the hip and he speaks very honestly. And I think mm -hmm. it's it's definitely worth listening to. So. <clears throat> we gravitate like we again we try to get people from uh you know a very hardcore perspective in terms of this is what the bible teaches there's a heaven and there's a hell and you know some people are going to go to heaven other people are going to go to hell and that's just the way the way it is all the way to people who are much more the other way where they're a universalist and who would say that 
I'm not even a hopeful universalist. It's like I can only this is the only way I can see that God can actually be good. If God is all powerful, if God is all loving, why wouldn't he ultimately reconcile all people to himself? You know, so they put forward an argument like that. And and uh, so, yeah, we've really run the gamut. We also talked to annihilationists, but, you know, um, I don't know if I need to. Uh, yeah, we talked to people like Edward Fudge and I. <clears throat> annihilationism is an interesting position because 20, 25 years ago, when John Stott comes out and says he doesn't believe in the traditional view of hell, he believes in annihilationism, that, that really threw people for a loop. I remember being, yeah. I was actually in a Bible college at the time, and I remember just sort of hearing it. I didn't quite understand why that was so significant. But actually looking back on that debate in and using that as context for what happens with someone like Rob Bell, who comes out basically as someone who believes in a form of universalism we'll say or or hopeful universalism i i see a real parallel to that and so um i i'm i'm really eager to see 10 years from now how we look back on this because it may yeah. just be a very similar position where um um Mark Driscoll uses the analogy that there's state borders and there's national borders. So there's certain beliefs that will put you in a different state from him, but you're still within the same country. But then there's other beliefs that put you in another country or another religion. And so at this mm -hmm. point, I would say for a lot of mainstream evangelical Christians, anything that smacks of especially certain universalism puts you in a different country, so to speak. Yeah. Well, you could have said the same thing about annihilationism 25 years ago. Um, but that's that's changed quite a bit. And so I'm curious to see if that's the direction this goes or not. Well, really, before Edward Fudge came on the scene, annihilationism was considered a heresy, wasn't it? I mean, in within mainstream evangelicalism. I mean, yeah. like you said, when John Stock came out, I think that was a that was quite a uh, quite an ordeal for people because well, yeah, he was he, a bastion he, of evangelicalism, you know? Right, exactly. It has to do with his status. Like, I think the difference between him and Rob Bell is that I was just describing this to someone today. Sorry, I guess that my phone's ringing in the background. Sorry about that, folks. <laughs> no problem. <laughs> um, but then I think people had long suspected this of Rob Bell, but I, he had never really come out with a definitive statement. But love wins becomes the smoking gun. So it's like, aha, we got you. You know, wow. and, and so he was already under suspicion for maybe not being as orthodox as certain people would like him to be about certain beliefs, whereas John Stott exactly is the bastion of orthodoxy who suddenly comes out and uh, says he he just can't reconcile that part of the story with a loving God. And so, yeah, so the, suddenly people want to bend over backwards to accommodate his view because they value him so much in other areas, whereas Rob Bell, for certain people, I don't know if they need to remain nameless, we'll say John Piper, <laughs> he was very quick to... to <laughs> Farewell, <the> Rob Bell. <laughs> Farewell and say, this is sort of what we expected, so there you go. To, yeah. You know, and and so I think there is a difference there. So I guess the question is, you know, is it going to be N.T. Wright? Is it going to be, uh, you know, who does it have to be, I guess, to embrace universalism for people to look at it and say, well, maybe it is something that we can accept as, as within the pale of orthodoxy. Or maybe that will never happen. I don't know. But it just yeah. my suspicion is the road, we seem to be moving down that road. Mm-hmm. And so, quickly, I, yeah. I think you're right. Quickly moving down that road, Kevin. What what really? And I know you you've touched on this a little bit, but what really? A what really led you to make this film? What was the burning passion in you that made you want to do this film? And why did you feel like it was the right time to do it? Was it the Rob Bell book? Was it 
what what really what really made you want to do it, and then what made you go of all the times I could do it, I want to do it in 2012. Yeah, well, I'll give you two answers to that question. The first one is I'm going to say, and everyone note this: if <laughs> um, just blame Brad Jerzak. That's all I'll say. <laughs> um, Brad Bert Jerzak's hard to blame for anything. He's just too much of a lovable guy to, to place much blame on. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Well, I so I have this relationship with Brad Jerzak that goes back, uh, boy, over a decade. And what happened was we kind of been friends for a while, and we get together and form a publishing company called Freshman Press, and I you know, helped edit um, pr- pretty much all of his books and uh, we co-published them together and that sort of thing. And so I formed friendships with Brad and with uh, uh, a number of other people that uh, just become sort of mentor figures to me, just really opening my eyes to a lot of new ideas and a lot of fresh perspectives and that sort of thing. And this is this is during a time in my life when I was considering launching a website called toomuchchurch.com. <laughs> which which was just like expressed sort of my state of mind at the time. I wasn't going to church. I didn't really, you know, want to have anything to do with church. And so I end up uh, starting to work with Brad. Now I start going to Brad's church and actually kind of being grafted back into um, just being part of the, the church thing. Even though I was always a Christian, it was just I had, you know, had my issues with evangelicalism. Anyway, um, so... Um, one of the key books, I didn't actually have a lot to do with the book Stricken by God, which was uh, looking at some nonviolent views of the atonement. Michael Harden was involved with that book as well. Yeah, we've actually we actually had Brad do a podcast on Stricken by God with us, which was yeah. fantastic. We still get people get commenting on that all the time. Yeah, well, exactly. And so that book, um, I worked with another guy that we published named Wade Northy, actually, who wrote a novel. And he really explores a lot of these ideas in the novel. It was just oh, it's such a joyous experience to work on that book. And so these ideas start to really um, kind of give some theological legs to intuitions that I've been having my whole life, um, that there's something wrong with the story. I'm a screenwriter. I'm always thinking through story. I teach story all the time. And it just seems like that, that the picture that we have of hell and the atonement, I mean, the notion, especially the idea of penal substitutionary atonement, the idea that, you know, God is punishing Jesus for our sin Something yeah. just doesn't make sense to me about that on an intuitive level. So I start, you know, just hanging out with uh, these people like Brad, and it starts to give me a sense that, well, maybe there's there's some actually some really good theological reasons. This is more than a gut feeling. And so thinking through that. But the real capstone for me was working on Brad's book, um, Her Gates Will Never Be Shut, Hope, Hell, and mm. Jerusalem, which is is Brad's book really where he – takes a second look at at the traditional Western view of hell. And it was a revelation for me working on that book. This is in the fall of 2008. <clears throat> I'd actually just had two film projects fall apart. Um, I was unemployed for the first time in my in 13 years. I mean, it was just, it, and, it, wow. and, it, and it coincided with the financial meltdown. It was just a really kind of a dark fall. It was, what a great time to work on a book on hell. <laughs> You know, and uh, so I'm working. At least on, the book starts with hope. Yeah, you know? <laughs> and that's the thing is that it's a book that doesn't leave you in hell. It it gives you hope, and and so um, I got finished working on that book, and I'm just wanting to kind of hoot and holler in my office that what I'm reading in here is just it's it's just again it, it's it was just such a freeing experience to work on it, and um, I remember just saying to my wife, I've got to make a documentary about this, and so. Hmm. At the time, I wasn't really in a position to do that. 
but I, it was an idea that I thought about for the next two and a half years. Um, so then we come to January, 2011 and I look ahead at the calendar and I realize I'm turning 40 in like two months. All my life I've worked as somebody who has either written or edited, um, projects for other people. I've always been the one facilitating other people's dream projects and, you know, always the bridesmaid, never the bride, you know, type thing. <laughs> and uh, I just felt, you know what, I'm turning 40. I've got to stop. If I don't stop and make some of these dreams I have a reality, it's never going to happen. And so yeah. I I looked at two projects. One was a dramatic feature film project and one was Hellbound. And I just, I looked at my track record as a screenwriter, filmmaker, and I really felt, you know what, the time is right for hell. The time is right mm -hmm. for Hellbound. I've been dreaming about this forever. I just got to do it. I have no money to be able to pull this off. Um, I don't really have a clear plan yet, but I actually made a very simple decision, which I recommend everybody do if they're pursuing a dream, which is I said, no more dreaming. I'm going to do one thing every day to make this mm -hmm. thing a reality. And so I literally... I literally started to do that. Sometimes it'd be the last thing I did in a day. Sometimes it'd be the first thing, but it probably took me a week where one thing turned into two things and on and on and on. And, um, it was about, uh, when did Rob, the news on that Rob Bell's book break? I think, I think it was <clears throat> February was when the, was it February of last year that the trailer hit YouTube and yeah. all of the stuff started to hit the fan. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it was toward the end of February and, and it was like, at first, when I, I hadn't heard about it until like the Monday after that it, it, it really hit the fan. And I was actually frightened initially because I thought, oh, no, Rob Bell makes films. This is probably just like laying the groundwork for his documentary on hell. Numa is coming. Exactly. I know. I'm two months into this, and this is like I feel like I'm finally pursuing my dream. And, uh, you know, Rob Bell's going to destroy it for me. So I, I raced home and, and learned all about it, and I honestly didn't know what to think. And so we just thought I had brought a producer on board and we thought, let's just sit back and see how this unrolls. And it turns out to be this tremendous gift for me because it really helped me suddenly see what's going on. Mm. Prior to this, I, I think I was a little bit naive. I'm hanging out with people, I think, that are thinking different thoughts. And so I just think that's sort of normal. I don't realize how much of a reaction there will be to people who even raise questions about the traditional notion of hell or the atonement. But this just explodes everywhere with Rob Bell. And it was a real boon to me as a filmmaker because suddenly I can see everyone who has a dog in this fight. And it just really makes my interview, okay, who am I going to interview? Wow. You know, this, you know, I can start make a list of all these people who are responding to it pro and con. But the other thing it does for me is that I can then start to approach investors and that sort of thing to say, um, look at this. This is on the cover of Time magazine. People want yeah. to talk about this now. And um, so that's that's really how it came to be. And so it was within, I think it was by May that we managed to get the funding for our film. But by that point, we're five months into this. I'm putting my own money on the table, just really hoping that this is going to happen, but acting as if it is going to happen, just somehow believing it's going to happen. And it came true, thankfully. And I didn't have to mortgage the house or anything. <laughs> but I was willing to put my skin in the game because I just really believe in this because, you know, when, when something changes your life, you want to share it with other people. That's right. And, and, and I think that what we have to say in this film is going to change people's lives because I've watched it change my life. I've watched it change the life of the people on my film crew. 
I've seen it change the life of some of our interview subjects. I've just seen, you know, the fruit of what's going on um, is just been really, really positive. And so I'm excited about that. And uh, yeah, that's a really long answer to your question, but uh, no, I, I, you'll, you'll find, I love long answers. <laughs> I, the more elaboration, the better. Cause honestly, Kevin, I go back and listen to a lot of these and like with, with what you're talking about, um, it, there's, there's so many times that in, in the details is where you really find God. Right. You know, it's like some people say the devil's in the details, but you know, it's like, like what you're saying about the timing of this and, and the fact that you're able to get investors. And, you know, if you'd tried this in 2010, you know, I don't, I don't know that that would have been a possibility because people just thought, well, you know, there's only really one Christian option for hell. And, and I can remember very much like you when Rob Bell, when the whole trailer hit, I mean, to be honest, I was reading, Brad Jerzak's Her Gates Will Never Be Shut. I was reading Sharon Baker's Raising Hell, all those books. Mm-hmm. And I'll be honest, you know, <laughs> uh, true confessions, I was a little bit ticked in a way because I was like, okay, here comes Rob Bell and now it's going to the mainstream. And I was kind of feeling like it, in one way, I wanted that to happen. Mm-hmm. And in another way, it was like, I was so ticked at evangelicalism (laughs) and I was so getting blessed by reading this other stuff that it was almost like I didn't want, I didn't want some pop version of it to cheapen it. You know what I mean? And so I actually got a little bit ticked at first when the Rob Bell trailer hit and then it just really was kind of like the Lord speaking to Jonah through the vine, you know, (laughs) And, and the vine withers and the Lord's like, you know, shouldn't you, shouldn't you actually care about these people more than a vine? And, Mm -hmm. you know, I kind of came to the same place of going, gosh, Lord, you really want this message to get out there that not, not even about hell, but about who you are, because at at the end of the day, that's really what this whole debate all comes down to, whether it's on atonement, whether it's on hell is who is God, because until we get that question, right, we're going to, we're going to end up in a ton of different directions on all these other questions. Well, and that's what I really appreciate about what Rob Bell did beginning with his trailer is bringing that up and and that's, he called it the question behind the question. And I think that is the ultimate question because this gets back to um, mimetic theory, right? Because we will, we're imitators yeah, and we will become like the God that we worship. So what is God like is the crucial question. And so is God like us? That's a scary thought. It is a scary thought. (laughs) (laughs) Does he deal with evil the same way we deal with evil? Mm. Because if he does, we're screwed. Yeah. There's there's no way we can win with that God. That's right. That's right. And so we have to hope that God somehow can transcend our ways of dealing with evil, that he can transcend vengeance, that he can transcend, you know, punishment, that he can transcend the things. Because I think that, Again, lurking at the heart of this as well, though, is justice. And this is really key for us in terms of the film is to say, look, it, we cannot talk about hell um, unless we talk about it in the presence of victims, people who have been victimized by great evil. Because, you know, I think God can be seen as evil in a number of ways. God could be seen as evil if he treats Hitler by be- if he deals with Hitler by becoming Hitler times eternity. I think God yeah, becomes wow. evil then. But God is just as evil if he treats Hitler as if his actions had no real consequence for his victims. Because then Mm. he becomes indifferent, which is horrible. Mm. And and I think this is where a lot of Christians and non-Christians seem to fall down, is that either God's a monster or God is a wimp. 
And the, wow. I think these are both, this is a false, these are both uh, caricatures. Yeah. And, and that, so, but tragically, I think some people walk away from Christianity <clears throat> based on these caricatures. And to think that there is no way of somehow reconciling justice and love. Um, and wow. and um, so, yeah, so I, I think that's really key to talk about that in terms of the victims. Um, and yeah, so anyway, I, I can't remember what triggered that thought, but but I just think that we can always lapse into these theological debates and lose touch with the real world. And, um, you know, I, I just want to be wary of that because I do find yeah. theological debates interesting. Definitely. But when it comes down to it, what we're really talking about is the fact that one day each and every one of us is going to die. Yeah. And, uh, you know, what happens after that? That's people are really curious about that. And what, um, what's the relationship between the life we live now and any sort of life that, that, that happens afterwards. And, um, yeah. So anyway, you know, Kevin, while we're on that topic, you and I had a conversation a few months ago and I just, I went away, I hung up the Skype call and I just went away and I, my mouth was just on the floor <laughs> with some of the things you were talking about with how, how our view of hell and really our view, just every, every different, um, motive that we have, especially in, in our Christian lives, our religious lives, spiritual lives, and in our daily lives, mm -hmm. how much it's driven by the fear of death. Um, and, and you introduced me to, is it Ernest Becker or Ernst Becker? I've heard both. Ernest. Yeah. Well, I mean, Ernest. I guess, I don't know how you would pronounce it, but it's yeah, Ernest. Yeah. Yeah. You, you introduced me to Ernest Becker and, and his, um, his book, the denial of death. Mm -hmm. And you really, you really kind of dovetailed that into mimetic theory as you were just talking about. Can you talk a little bit about how really the fear of death has influenced our view of hell and kind of maybe, maybe bring some of Ernest Becker's ideas to light on this topic? Yeah. Well, Ernest Becker's a really fascinating figure. Like he, he is, um, I, I really enjoy people like him and Brené Girard, uh, even Joseph Campbell or Karl Marx or some of these people who dare to come up with a meta theory. And this is something that Becker, he, he's fully aware of the foolishness of what he's trying to do in the denial of death, which is, in a sense, trying to come up with a theory that describes all human behavior. <clears throat> it would be, um, I just wonder if I should quote something from the book, but um, I think it would take too long. But really, this, the central argument that he's making in the denial of death is that uh, Freud thought that it was our, that, that's, that Anxiety about sex was the, was the central repression that, that we're sublimating all the time. So we create great art, we create civilizations, we create all these things, be, and, and somehow grappling with our, our anxiety about sex. And what, what Becker would say, he's in a sense offering a corrective to Freud to say, no, the central repression isn't about sex, it has to do with death. And that a, a good way of putting it is that we have the mind of a god but the body of a worm. And... Mm -hmm that there's this horror that comes we 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 have a gift and a curse that no other animal has and that's that's an awareness of our impending death so we have consciousness and so we know we're going to die so what do we do how do we live with the horror of that every day well we find ways to basically uh suppress those thoughts so we will build you know what he would call immortality systems that allow us to 
set those thoughts aside so we can we can almost live as if that reality isn't there mm. and so forms of death denial that's why his book is called the denial of death we're not i don't think any of us until someone like becker comes along and points it out are really aware of what we're doing um, but we're trying to achieve immortality we're trying to transcend death either symbolically or literally so religion of course comes in <clears throat> as one of the key ways that we attempt to do that uh but it, it, and so I think this is a healthy thing, by and large, because how can we get anything done if we're worrying, you know, like George Costanza on Seinfeld, that that we're going to die? You just become, <laughs> or Woody Allen, you just become paralyzed, you know, as so right. many characters are, because they're just fixated on the fact they're going to die, so then they forget to live. So right. I think that, that these immortality systems can free us to create all kinds of incredible things. Um, but I think they can also be, and this is what Becker would argue, is that they become problematic when they become rigid. And so what we'll see happen is um, in order to maintain my sense of immortality, I have to have uh, a lot of people buy into my system. Mm. And if people start to question my system, you're now questioning my bulwark against death. And that raised mm. a lot of anxiety in me. And so what I'm going to have to do is find a way to mitigate the threat that you're posing to me because you're questioning my system and my whole, you know, and so you're really bringing up a lot of death anxiety. And so when we hold to these, these immortality systems in a rigid fashion, we come into conflict with each other. And this is what we see in a situation like nine 11 or something. We're really seeing a clash of immortality systems, two different religions or, I mean, okay, is America a Christian nation, but I mean, it's perceived that way by certain, um, Muslims, I would guess, as a Christian nation, but you're seeing two immortality systems literally colliding <clears throat> because each one poses a threat to the other that has to be dealt with so we can continue going about our daily lives. So Becker's really helping us understand, uh, and terror management theory is, is, is a branch of experimental psychology that really takes Becker's ideas and tests them in the lab, and it's pretty fascinating what they've discovered. Um, in terms of how real death anxiety actually is and how much it's having an influence on how we perceive people who are different than us, how we perceive people who believe things differently than us. And when it comes to hell, this is really intriguing to me because if the central anxiety that we have is death, the traditional Western view of hell takes that anxiety and multiplies it times eternity. Yeah. I mean, times anything you can imagine. It makes the fear of death all that much greater because it's now non, not only non-existence that we fear, we actually fear something worse than non-existence. It's perpetual existence in yeah, pain. Yeah. So I, I wish Becker was still alive to uh, weigh in on the hell debate. Um, but I, I think that's really intriguing, especially when we have a religion with Christianity where the central pillar of the good news is the resurrection. Mm. And I think that's that's fascinating because... I think the way that Christianity is often framed for people is that <clears throat> the central problem of humanity is sin. We have sinned and we've made God angry. So God had to come up with a way to deal with that. So he doesn't have to be angry with us anymore. Um, that's kind of hard for me to square with the Bible. Number one, but it also hard for me once I kind of understand what Ernest Becker is arguing. I, I think that I would, I would say what he does is reverse engineer Christianity. He he sort of diagnoses what's wrong and how to fix it. Wow. Uh, and and what's wrong is is our fear of death. 
And what will fix it is us attaching our lives to something that transcends death, i.e. God. Um, he was he was pretty critical of organized religion because of what it tended to become, which is mm. a law unto itself often. But he was a big advocate of pers- some, you know more personal versions of spirituality, but saying that you cannot base your life um, on something that is 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 going to die because basically everything will be centered on death and you have to somehow find something that's that's going to transcend death and so the notion of of a some kind of a spiritual being he was a, you know he thought that was something healthy for people to do so he was actually you'll find people like freud and that were very critical of religion thinking uh or even you know someone like marx saying this is a delusion the where, opiate of the people or the opiate whatever of the people you know it's yeah. it's just something uh, it's, it, you know, from a, say, a, an evolutionary standpoint, this is like a byproduct of evolution that got us, you know, through a certain stage of evolution, but now has really become like, a uh, a vestigial organ, you know, that just, it's, it's still here, but it doesn't really have a function. Whereas Becker becomes a strong proponent, I think, and a defender of people's of belief is actually something really healthy. It's a healthy response to death anxiety, unless it becomes a form of immortality that, that, you know, demands uh, unanimity. And so then you have to eliminate threats. So uh, I just got, I just totally rabbit trailed myself there, which is a bit of a problem. (laughs) Well, no, no, you're, I love, I love where you're going with this. Let me ask you as, because in case you don't know this, we actually do own the domain rabbittrailpodcast.com. So (laughs) that, that should tell you something. A listener actually bought that for us. (laughs) So let's explore this rabbit trail a little bit. Um, When, with what you were just saying, the irony of us holding to a system of infinite existence and pain, when you juxtapose that with a Lord who's resurrected, Right. Expand on that a little bit. Good. What's yeah, you, the... you brought me back on track. Well, I think this is this is the interesting thing is that we have a religion where the heart of it is a resurrection, which is a defeat of death. So it seems to me to confirm Becker's intuitions that the central problem of humanity isn't that we've offended a God. It's that we have this fear of death that is causing us to become horrible people, because mm. when you have death anxiety, you will naturally become self-centered because everyone and everything will be viewed as a threat to your existence. So you have to mitigate the threat. So it becomes a self-centered way of life. You're going to become predatory. You're going to become acquisitive. You're going to, you know, do all these horrible things that we do. So I would say um, that fear of death actually leads to sin. So sin is actually a symptom of the problem. So the resurrection, what Jesus comes along and does is he defeats the power of death. And and if you read the book of Acts, if you read the Apostle Paul, I mean, I always like to go back to 1 Corinthians uh, 15, where he, he goes back and says, just let me remind you of the gospel, of the good news I shared with you. It doesn't say God was angry at us, Jesus died, and now he's okay. So accept that and you'll be fine. Yeah. The good news is death is not the end that Mm. death has been defeated, and if it hasn't, we're a bunch of fools. Mm. So the Mm. good news is the central problem of humankind, as Hebrews 2, 14 and 15 says, is is this bondage to the fear of death. We've been set free from bondage through Christ's defeat of death. So what does that mean? It means that we don't have to live anymore under the shadow of death. We can Mm. step into the light of the resurrection. We can, and so 
um, you'll go back to the ancient Greeks and they recognized that the logos, the organizing principle of society was violence. This is how we order human society, how through violence. That's how we maintain borders. You know, that's how we maintain uh, finances and, and all these sorts of things. That is the logos. Well, Jesus comes along and introduces in the gospel, you know, John talks about this at the, in the uh, prologue. Um, he calls Jesus the new logos, right? In the beginning was the word, the logos. He's introducing a new organizing principle. And the organizing principle is not violence. It's not death-driven violence. It's actually self-giving love. It's the two greatest commandments, right? It's saying, and so if you look at the two greatest commandments, it's the solution to death anxiety. Um, really, and, and again, um, but but I mean, ultimately, the resurrection is. But Jesus is showing us, in a sense, how to live in the light of the resurrection, um, and that's to number one, we can't um, build our, we can't be self-centered. We have to be God-centered. So the first commandment that He gives is, you know, love the God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So God must be first, and then you're free to love your neighbors yourself, but you're not really free to love your neighbors yourself if you're full of death anxiety, if, if your neighbor's a threat. So Jesus defeats death and in a sense makes it safe to truly live. Now, that doesn't mean that you're not going to die, but it, it means that death is not the end. Death's lost its sting. It's lost its sting. So you don't have yeah. to be predatory. You don't have to be acquisitive. You don't have to be all these different things. And this is where for me, <clears throat> and, and okay, so how does how does... Renny Girard fit into this, because I think this is really key, is is me, the order in which you read things sometimes is is just such a great, you know, kind of a happy accident. But I happen to read Ernest Becker and then move on to Renny Girard. And I start learning about learning about mimetic theory and scapegoating. And so Girard is talking about imi imitation. And so um, this is how we learn is through imitating other people. But this leads to all kinds of problems because we begin to um, desire what, you know, what our, our models desire. We become competitors with them and then we get all this undifferentiated desire. So we have to find a scapegoat and rid ourselves of, of the evil. And, but I think that what Gerard is really doing, I think you, you can look at Gerard and Becker in tandem and to say that the Gerard is helping to define a mechanism by which we protect our immortality systems. So that say, say that again. Say that again. <laughs> Brendan Gerard is is helping us to understand the mechanism that we use to protect our immortality system. So Jesus, in a sense, comes along and he threatens the immortality system of the religious leaders of his day. Um, he's he's questioning the system. The system is in danger. There's there's all this. He starts to basically break the stratification that they have of society. So. Um, what are they going to do? Well, there's two things they could do. Number one, they could concede and say, you're right, we're wrong. Um, we're going to let this all go. But that's not really the way we tend to be as human beings. Instead, we're going to say, no, uh, let's get rid of this guy. Um, and then everything will be fine again. We'll have peace. We'll have peace. And <clears throat> we're not the problem. He's the problem. Yeah. And so let's get rid of him. And so the interesting thing is when... Um, I just heard this preach in church last Sunday or a couple of Sundays ago is Jesus references the story of the uh, serpent being lifted up in the desert back when the uh, Moses is leading the Israelites and they get attacked by snakes. And so if they hold up the bronze serpent, they'll be healed. Well, Jesus says that's essentially what is going to happen to me. And it's kind of a puzzling thing to say, 
Um, but not from a Girardian point of view. From a Girardian point of view, it makes a lot of sense because what's being held up is almost, a, I would say, a mirror. That G, what's being, So how are people being healed by looking at the thing that's killing them, the snake? Mm. Well, Jesus takes that and makes it an analogy for himself. And I think in the same way, him being held up is an image of the curse that's killing us, which is scapegoating mm. violence. Wow. So in wow. a sense, Jesus becomes an image of the snake that's killing us. He's saying he's he's being held up on a cross, and and what is being revealed is this is who you are, and this is the price that you're paying. Um, to you know this this is the uh, oh the 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 horrific act being done in the name of civilization. I can't remember. There's a there's a better term for that, but this is who you are. This is Morpheus saying, you know, welcome to the real world. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and it, but what he's doing is, is exposing it so we can finally see it. And as, you know, I always like to think of the Roman centurion who says, surely this man was the son of God is the first person who gets it. Interesting. It's the voice of the oppressor uh, in Israel. Who's the first guy who recognizes that. Wow. And, um, and, and so uh, death going back, trying to summarize this for people is Ernest Becker showing us is that most of what we're doing is is being driven by death. And and uh, Richard Beck is all over this stuff. And he would say that most of us have a death-centered faith. He says, if Jesus took away the sting of death, why is death, why does it continue to sting the hell out of everybody? And what hmm. uh, we have this death-centered faith. Jesus came to defeat death and set us free from the bondage of the, of the fear of death. And, and also, I think, to to set us free by from the mechanism that we're using to protect ourselves from having to confront our death anxiety, which is scapegoating violence. So mm. I, I just think that there's this, I don't know. And again, I'm still in the midst of, and there's going to be Girardians cringing right now. And uh, <laughs> I don't know what you call people who study Becker, but Beckerians are going to be cringing now as I just like <laughs> tromp all over everything. Um, but this is sort of my, my street level understanding. And, um, to me, it's almost unlocking an E equals MC squared of human behavior that I really mm. am continuing to explore. But so then hell factoring into this, it seems rather convenient that the, you know, when you look at Becker, you look at Gerard, you look at our whole scapegoating um, system that we have, that the traditional Western view of hell, it seems to be that same mechanism projected onto eternity. Mm. That the, the way scapegoating mechanism, the scapegoating mechanism that, that, mm. that what's going to happen is that the way to solve evil is to get rid of evil people. Yeah. Yeah. And so we're not going to look at our violence. You know, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to point to their violence. <clears throat> this is where, you know, I look at something, a really good example. I might get some criticism for this, but is, is the Coney 2012 phenomenon. To me, it seems like textbook scapegoating. Mm. If we can get Coney, then everything will be okay. Mm. Mm. And I, I know they're not exactly saying that, but that's sort of like the key is we got to get Coney. Because at least mm. then we can, we can feel that evil isn't beyond our control. And that's, that's sort of like saying Coney is the only one, it, that everything bad that happened with with the LRA and and just you know with everything horrific that happened in Uganda is all because of Kony but mm. i mean i i think that is to totally ignore the colonial history of africa to totally ignore um 
the Cold War, mm. and Cold War, Cold War politics, and all this destabilization that's happening in a country like Uganda that allows somebody like Kony to even seize power. Mm. And, and so Kony becomes a really fitting guy that we can pile all of our evil onto because then we can ignore our evil. Yeah. Yeah. And we can say Kony's violence was bad, but we can mount a military group to hunt him down and probably kill him. And our violence is good because it's, yeah. being, you know what I mean? But it, yeah, it, absolutely. It, again, scapegoating works when we're not aware of it. And I think when, and so I find that movement and my people might think I'm totally misreading it and being totally unfair, but, and, and I'm open to that, but it just seems to me on the surface, that's sort of what's going on. And the fact that it's being perpetuated by um, a group with Christian affiliation to me is, is disturbing because it feels like we've totally missed the gospel because mm. the gospel isn't about hunting people down. That's right. That's right. It's not, it's not about extinguishing the evil with more evil. No, you know, evil, evil never. It's the whole thing of, you know, it's like Martin Luther King Jr. in the, <laughs> in the sixties, you know, when he said, you can continue to pour out your violence on us. You can beat us down. You can, you can bloody us up. You can do all these things, but what you can't make us do is quit loving you. Right. And what we've done in the body of Christ for the most part is we've tried to fight fire with fire right. and we've believed in just violence as opposed to unjust violence. You know, one of the examples I think of, you're, you're using a good one there, is, you know, the Iraq War. Mm-hmm. And, and like you said, I'll probably catch flack for this too, but, you know, Saddam Hussein, was he an evil man? Yes. Was he an evil dictator? Yes. Should he have been in power? Probably not. But it, it, was it any, was our evil or our violence justified in going in and taking him out? To somehow make us, it really seems like he became a scapegoat for 9-11 in many ways. Because in reality, when you look at it, it doesn't seem like Iraq really had anything to do with 9-11. And yet we're going after somebody to make us, because we can't find Osama bin Laden, we're going after someone to kind of, you know, appease the people. And I, I really think, I really think mimetic theory was alive and well during that whole process, you know? Right. And it's all about scapegoating. Well, I I should say the same thing about Coney. I'm not trying to minimize anything Coney did. I mean, sure. sure. And that's not to minimize it at all, but it's to say that, that we just have the wrong idea when we think like going after someone like Saddam Hussein, well, that's going to solve all our problems going after someone like Osama bin Laden. I mean, and, and I, yeah. So again, coming, bringing this discussion back to hell it seems again that the, the, there just seems to be a suspicious alignment between this human tendency towards scapegoating violence and hell, because it seems like ultimate the ultimate form of scapegoating, and it comes back to I guess competing notions of really what was Jesus up to, hmm. because some people will say, well, hell makes perfect sense if you believe that the the primary problem is that God is holy. We've offended his holiness and somebody's got to make that right. And in the yeah. sin either has to be paid for on the cross or in hell. Yeah. And so if that's your view of God, then it, it makes perfect sense. But if you look at some things somewhat differently and say, well, you know, maybe actually God <clears throat> going back to the garden of Eden story, I keep asking people, when sin, okay, if you think that the problem is God is holy and we've sinned and that's he's offended him and he can't be in the presence of sin, he can't even look on sin, he has to look at us through his son because we're so horrible and that, that doesn't really square with the story in the Garden of Eden where when sin happens, who's hiding from who? 
<laughs> we don't see Very God true. saying, oh, I can't look at you. Leave. He's like, <laughs> no, God comes looking for them and they're hiding That's right. That's because right. they recognize what they've done. And yeah. and they can't. And, and so God, the presence of God becomes painful. Mm. And <clears throat> I, I think that's so interesting, too. With I mean, in a sense, there's, there was no way we couldn't crucify Jesus because um, when we're caught up in our own wretchedness, having G- God make himself so present, we just can't stand it anymore that yeah. we just have to get rid of it. You know, and, and in a sense, God uses that as the very thing by which to set us free by, you know, and I think that's one of the beauties, the most beautiful things of, of the gospel. And it's the ultimate form of mercy. While we were yet enemies, Christ died for us. While we were spitting in his face, nobody wanted to be saved. Nobody wanted it. And God comes and gives it to us anyway. And so now we come around and share the gospel. I hear people tell me this all the time, say, well, you know, they'll really want to take an Arminian view of things and say, well, God gives us the choice. We can either choose him or not. And if we don't choose him, well, hey, God, God will give us what we want forever. (laughs) I don't know anybody that wants that. <laughs> you know, I'm, yeah, I don't know anyone who wants that, but I also know that nobody wants, you know, in a sense, nobody wants this. It, right. Because we're we're addicted to whatever we're addicted to. No addict yeah. wants to give up their drug because their drug is life. That's right. what, that's what, who wants an intervention? That's why we do yeah. interventions because nobody wants <laughs> exactly. an intervention. Exactly. Well, God does the ultimate intervention to a bunch of addicts who don't mm. want to be intervened with. And so then when you turn around and preach a gospel that says, well, you better make the right choice. Mm. It's like, but but that's not even, <laughs> I don't know. Wow. It just doesn't seem to me, it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't square with the biblical narrative, number one. Thomas Talbot's book, The Inescapable Love of God, just totally rocked my world and blew my whole mind open when it came to that. Because, you know, I had always taken an Arminian view of things and, and had um, made fun of the Calvinists mm-hmm. for overemphasizing the sovereignty of God. Right. And then when Thomas Talbot kind of turned the tables on me and went, wait a minute, you do the same thing with Arminianism and you make human free will the ultimate end all be all so that God is bound by your free will to completely miss his purposes and to completely have his purposes thwarted. You know, I just went, oh my gosh, we've really we've tried to create this either or paradigm in the body of Christ when the whole time one of us has to deny either God's power or his love. Mm -hmm. And I think some of what we're seeing emerge right now in this whole um, movement that is trying to make uh, some form of ultimate reconciliation or Christian universalism or whatever we want to call it a viable option within Christianity I think part of that movement is saying we don't have to have the we don't have to have either end of the paradox. We get to have both. You I, know, we can have both God's love and God's power, and you can reconcile those in in something like a Christian universalism. It seems like. Well, I also think that what you can do is you can have God's will be sovereign and keep our wills intact, and and that and I think people tend to think of it well. If God's will is sovereign, then there's no such thing as free will. And I would say, well, I'm actually pretty skeptical about the notion of free will. I, I believe we have a will, but how free is it? Right, exactly. Especially if you think about René Girard, what are we doing? We're either imitating the mob or we're imitating Christ. Why, why is Jesus always saying, 
imitate me, follow me. I do what the Father's doing, so you should do what I do. Go and make yeah. disciples. It's all about imitation because we're, mm. we're going to be imitating somebody. So our wills aren't really free. I mean, I was out shopping for jeans the other day with my wife and, and standing there going, why am I, you know, going to drop this money on jeans? Well, because I'm probably going to make some public appearances and I don't want to look like a schmuck. But you look at the, the whole fashion industry really <clears throat> is it's, it's, it's reinforcing a mob mentality. And the last thing you want to do is stand out from the mob because you know what exactly. happens to the chicken in the hen house who stands out, he gets pecked at <laughs> <laughs> and so there's that it's it's a very subtle thing that's working and and of course I, I don't know if Michael talked about that but I mean even all of the disciples including Peter get swept up in this and so that there is oh. and so Jesus or sorry Peter momentarily stops imitating Christ and and goes to imitate the mob so when it comes to free will and hell I I again I, I don't think it's a sim it, it it's not a choice between well I guess if you say God's will is sovereign then I don't my will counts for nothing. My choices don't mean right. anything. Well, no, your choices mean everything. Right. Um, but I, I always say, why do we have to attach the word free to will? Mm. Mm. It's good. Because I, I'm like, of course we have a will. Of course we have volition. Of course we can make choices. But what is driving those choices? And I believe well, that God is in the act of freeing the will. I don't believe nobody is given a free will. And then, okay, are you going to choose God or not? Because I would say, well, if you wouldn't choose God, then your will's not free. Mm, absolutely. I think that's really what Talbot brings out in that book. Is exactly, that yeah. We don't, we don't really understand that, you know, unless you have a completely informed decision, you're not really exercising free will, and none of us have a completely informed decision when it comes to God. Well, and I would, see, Greg Boyd, I could hear screaming right now, yeah, well, Craig, I can too. <laughs> Craig Boyd actually doesn't scream. He just would, I don't know what he would do, but he would object. <laughs> he would raise an objection and say, well, are you saying that the only way we can choose God is to essentially become God? Um, mm. And I would say, this is, I've heard this criticism of Talbot, in which I would kind of agree with it, but this is where I bring the emotion component back. I don't think this is a matter, Jerry Walls actually was very critical of Talbot on this. Who's a, he's written uh, Hell, the Logic of Damnation, um, mm. is that um, that I think that what's being assumed there is that it's it's a it's a purely rational choice, and I think that emotion again coming back to how do we arrive at the positions we do well primarily via our emotions I think and so yeah. that it will be emotional reasons that we have for rejecting God, and mm -hmm. so it's it's more of a emotive transformation that needs to happen as much as a cognitive or a rational transformation. And so I get, I think we need to be, to be delivered from those things. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that's absolutely a great point. Um, on, on a, w w I want to get into a little bit more in depth here in a minute on, uh, on a couple other questions, but just on a lighter note, and I think I know what your answer is already, but who was your favorite interviewee during this whole process? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm guessing Frank Schaefer, just from what I, just from what I've heard, but, um, and, and it's probably going to be hard to pin down. It's probably like picking favorite kids, but, yeah. um, what was your favorite moment and uh, without giving the movie away, what was your favorite, the thing that impacted you the most, I guess. Yeah, it is. It is really hard to choose. Um, and if I don't pick Michael Harden, I know I'm going to hear about it, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> Michael was fantastic. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, it, it is really hard to say. I mean, there's, um, but yeah, I, yeah, I'll, I mean, uh, 
I would go with Frank Schaefer in terms of uh, that interview almost didn't happen just due to certain logistics and the fact that it happened. We we're so thankful and he was so gracious to us and he just blew us away um, with just how forthright he was. And I think even mm. afterwards, you know, he kind of felt the same way that we just really managed to capture something really special in that moment. Mm. But I mean, yeah, there's, yeah, there's so many, so many great times. We, we had a lot of fun making this film. And uh, yeah. whether I agreed with somebody's position or didn't agree with it, we still enjoyed, you know, and I'm hopefully that we can be friendly on, with everybody who was involved in Absolutely. this film. One person Absolutely. got mad at me. I won't say who it is, but one person got mad at me during the midst of the interview. I can't tell you how many people got mad at me after the interview because I don't know. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but hopefully, I don't know. I have a feeling that we can't be friends because some people yeah. won't want to be friends. But, um, yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. The, the, um, uh, through this whole process, how would you say that you've changed? How, how has this not only maybe affected your view of hell, but I, I know you've said that this has been a life changing, life altering process. How would you say that you've most changed during this last year and a half or two years? You know, I should bring my wife in here. Maybe she can answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> she She's probably a pretty good gauge of it, I would say. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think I could probably answer that. You know, the, the 2020 version of me will be able to answer that question better than the 2012 version. But um, yeah. it's, I think that you set out on a journey like this, thinking you kind of know what's going on. You, you think you kind of know what your subject matters about. And midway through, you realize, boy, I, I didn't even begin to understand and mm. hell for me just so much has become you know my own thinking I guess it's gone so so far beyond hell already even though that that's the subject of the film I mean again we build that you know I, I always call hell the tip of the iceberg because it just opens up all of these questions behind the questions and so for me yeah. I would say that what I my whole perception of of Christianity is utterly transformed where people like Ernest Becker, I don't even know what he believed. I don't know what, if he really believed in anything or what Rennie Girard, Michael Harden, some of these people, what, what they've helped me understand is that what we have in the Hebrew and the Christian scriptures, I would call it, you know, going back to like CS Lewis is, is not deep magic, but deep wisdom from the dawn of time that what is captured here is this fascinating diagnosis of what's wrong with humanity and how to make it right. And I think the big problem is, is that Christianity has been hijacked by um, a lot of people who've used it for other purposes. And so there's a huge, you know, there was just a massive atheist rally in Washington, DC. Um, and, and, and I would look at, um, that is a direct result of the good news, quote unquote, being hijacked by people who've turned it into bad news. Yeah. yeah. And it's, it's a tragedy, but it's mm -hmm. also for me so exciting because I think I finally understand myself, you know, like it, again, you, you can't go and do something like this and not always be coming back to examine yourself. Mm. Um, and and trying to understand well how what's driving my behavior why do I believe what I believe am I just fooling myself do I just want to believe this what's my authority um, 
who am I to say any of this? And and shouldn't I just submit to the Catholic Church because, you know, they have apostolic succession. It's my Catholic friend keeps telling me, you know, and, and, and you know what I mean? Like all this stuff is kind of up for grabs. I guess for me, the same thing happened to me on Expelled really in that religion as a whole, the whole notion of God's existence was up for grabs. If you don't go to that level and the subject that you're dealing with, you you haven't, you know, if you haven't hit that rock bottom where you go, I think I may need to give up everything that I've based my life on up until this point. You haven't fully explored the subject. Yeah, and, I, you're right. I, and I think that's what's really happened to me where um, there's a point at which you almost want to throw the Bible out because you just can't deal with it anymore. You go and read some of this Old Testament stuff, and then you hear these people trying to do these gymnastics to say, well, that Old Testament view of God, we can perfectly reconcile that with Jesus, who says, love your enemies, because da-da-da-da. Well, that doesn't make any sense. And so you, just want to, there. Yeah, so you just want to throw that out. And I've talked to yeah. people who I just like, oh, I just wish, that, you know, that, that they have thrown the Bible out. And I, yeah. it's a tragedy, because you don't have to. Because yeah. I think that what we've been held hostage to is a certain way of reading the Bible, whereas Greg Boyd would say people have mistaken the map for the territory and mm. that their way of reading the Bible is the Bible, mm. that their way of interpreting the word of God is the word of God. The Bible mm. clearly says this, and anyone who would, who, would, who would disagree is in the same category as somebody who walks around believing gravity doesn't exist. You know that 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 these 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 convictions become moral convictions become moral realities, and so I think I think that's the real tragedy. So how has this transformed me? I I just I mean Jesus, the whole gospel narrative, my understanding and my growing understanding of how to read the New Testament. I mean, or sorry, the Old Testament. Uh, <laughs> just so much is going on here. I, what I would really want to say to people overall is take a second look. If you're a Christian, take a second look at what you believe and why you believe it. If you've rejected Christianity because you don't like how political it's become, how it's become about economics, how it's a bunch of personality cults, how it's all this horrendous stuff that it's become, I'm like, good. I say to Bill Maher, I hope Bill Maher watches this film yeah. because – I would have loved to work with Bill Maher on religious because yeah. I, I just think that what he's the, the type of religion that he's critiquing needs to be critiqued in the way that he did. I went away from religious in many ways saying, I don't believe in the God that Bill Maher doesn't believe in either. <laughs> I thought if that's who God is, yeah, I'm an atheist too, you know? Well, yeah. And, and, and the funny thing about that movie is, is that, what what Bill Barr respects more than anything is authenticity. And when he encounters authenticity, he responds graciously yeah. because yeah. it's like, wow, at least you guys act like Christians, yeah. you know? And, and I think that um, I just tweeted today that I think Bon Jovi wrote, you give love a bad name. That was his OT evangelical Christianity. Um, <laughs> because, uh, you know, I think that's what's going on a lot of the times. And I think it's a tragedy. So, how has this changed my life? It just makes me realize we are sitting on something here that is is just incredible and that it has been turned into something that people despise. And René Girard predicted this, is that the document that reveals scapegoating will eventually be scapegoated itself. Mm -hmm. um, and But I would just say take a second look because what's going on is not just relevant to a bunch of people in a – 
Southern Baptist Church in Texas. I mean, what's going on with the gospel is something that is transformative for the world. Yeah. And it, it's so, this, this, this message has been so maligned and so packaged or whatever, it's almost, it's difficult for me to even say that because it sounds, I just sound like any other Christian saying that, but I just somehow feel it's what I'm saying so goes beyond the Sunday school, you know, depiction of that. Yeah. Yeah. Good stuff, man. Good stuff. So help us out. When can we see the movie? When's it coming out? It's coming out in September. And September. Um, yeah, we're going to be doing a theatrical release. So, um, and it, it's, we're not going to like release on a thousand screens at once. Um, we're going to kind of be doing an innovative strategy in terms of how we're doing it, uh, different parts of the country, well, uh, North America. And uh, yes, yeah, so you're going to be able to see it in theaters. Eventually, we're going to roll it out onto DVD and VOD and all these different sorts of venues. But September's when when to uh, look for it in theaters. And of course, we're going to be uh, making announcements on our website and Facebook and that sort of thing. So I would encourage you guys to come and, and check us out. Now, I've noticed on your on your Hellbound website that you have a um, that you've you've of course added a thing. I forget what, it, what is that called Kevin, where we can actually request the film to be shown in our area. Yeah. What demand, is that called? It's called the, we just calling it demand the movie, um, demand the movie. Yeah. yeah. So of course we're doing research to find out where are some really ideal locations to open the film, but you, uh, folks can just really help us out by letting us know. And we're also looking for people who are interested in becoming what we're calling hell raisers, um, which are ambassadors that can help us raise the issue of hell in your community. So I, I'm really seeing this film. My Here's my dream for this film. This is a, a film that every youth pastor in America t- can take their youth group to. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a youth pastor for a very brief period of time. I love something like that where you can show it to your youth group and get them involved in a really fascinating discussion. Every youth yeah. pastor is looking for that. I, yeah. I'm hoping that that's what this film can become. I'm hoping that your small group that you're meeting in can say, hey, we're going to make this an, an event. We can go out and say if you've got an outreach component to your group. I think this is just such a great film to bring someone to. Hey, we want to talk about, have a s- discussion about spiritual matters. Man, let's go talk about hell because yeah. uh, everybody everybody thinks about it. Everybody's heard the hell story. So, I mean, I, I think this is something that um, is just going to be ideal for that. But the question is going to be, are you willing to put what you believe on the table? Are you willing to have some hard questions asked about what you believe? And so I am hope people are up for the challenge um, because I think it's, for me, it's born nothing but good fruit in my life. Mm. And I'm hoping well, that it's going to do for other people as well. I want to encourage our listeners, you guys out there, don't just go see this movie alone. Tell your friends about it. Get on Facebook. Tweet about it. Uh, you know, make sure to go to the Hellbound website. Um, not only the Hellbound website, but the Hellbound Facebook page. Like the Facebook page, Kevin. You've got a ton of good stuff that's coming out on the Facebook page. I, I keep up with it all the time. See the stuff that you're tweeting. See the stuff that uh, the the different articles that you're linking to. The different books you're recommending. There's just some really really great resources. So guys, like the Facebook page. Go to the Hellbound website, demand the movie in your area. When it comes out, let's support this thing. Great guns. Get people on board in your in your community. And I know with this Hellraiser thing, Kevin, what um 
Can you tell a little bit about what that entails and how we would, how can we help bring the film to our area and make it impactful where we're at? Well, yeah, number one is, yeah, demand the movie on the website. Um, email us. I mean, I, I try to personally respond to every email we get through the site and whatever comments we get through the Facebook page. So shoot us a message. We would love to, to hear from you. Um, we're going to be putting some stuff on the site soon, um, like banners, um, mini posters, um, links, and that sort of thing that you can use online or offline uh, to help promote the film. Like, you know, if you go to a college or something like that, um, yeah, so we're going to be giving you some tools, but yeah, I, th I think what you're saying, Ray, <clears throat> just telling people about it, getting people excited about it, coming and checking us out and engaging with us. Um, cause we always want to hear from people. And the other thing too, I just, I, I think for me, <laughs> I just feel so thankful to be doing what I'm doing. This is just to me, a tremendous privilege, even to meet yourself. I would never would have met you otherwise. Um, I'm just getting a chance to meet and engage with so many people. There's been so much support for us. And of course, all the people that helped us make this film, I'm just so, man, it's, it's just been, this has just been such an exciting journey. And uh, yeah, I, I just really can't wait to share it with, with uh, hopefully millions of people. <laughs> well, Kevin, I'll be honest with you. I don't get jazzed about movies very often, but Ever since I found out about this movie, I am chomping at the bit to get in the theater to watch it. So I, I am really, really stoked about it. I'm looking forward to it. I hope all of our listeners get on board with it and try and bring it to your area. I think it's going to make a real difference. I think we have a, I think we have a moment in time here to really, um, <laughs> Kevin, let me just first of all say, I, I'm a manager at a Christian bookstore mm -hmm. and I'll be the first to tell you, that Christian movies are normally hokey mm. and I don't get excited about Christian movies. I just don't. And um, so for me to get excited about something like this is really unique. I've been in the industry for uh, gosh off, I, I guess around 17 years, something like that. And I just don't get excited anymore about things like this, but I love what you're doing and I really can't wait to see the impact it's going to have. So guys, please get on board with this. And uh, Kevin, Man, we got to do this again. This is too fun. I I could sit and do this all day, brother. <laughs> thank you, man. Yeah, me too. This is I love it. It's uh, yeah. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, I'm I'm glad. Yeah. Uh, so uh, yeah, to have somebody yeah like you that uh, has seen a lot of this stuff. And again, I would say I'm hoping that this is a movie that isn't just something for Christians to watch. I mean, absolutely. Clearly, our primary market is going to be people who are engaged, but Again, I want to say to people who who maybe have come from a Christian background, who might be what they would call a recovering Christian or whatever, or who have rejected Christianity, come back and take a second look because I, I just think there's something really fascinating going on here that is that is worth you know worth paying attention to. Definitely, definitely. Kevin, thank you so much. The website's hellboundthemovie.com. Check it out, guys. Like the Facebook page and uh, let's see this thing grow big. Kevin, bless you, brother. Thank you, man. Great stuff. Kevin, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really, really enjoyed talking with you. Look forward to talking with you more in the future. I hope you guys have really enjoyed this. I just feel like there is just so much to chew on in this podcast. I tell you, as soon as we got off the phone, <laughs> I think it was like 1.30 in the morning or something, my time, and um, I, I immediately started mixing this podcast down so that I could go back and listen to some of it myself because there were just so many great connections that Kevin helped me make 
through the conversation, especially when it came to Ernest Becker's denial of death, um, the theory that he had about that and, and how that connected with the fear of death that Christians seem to play into with the ideas of hell that we come up with. Great, great stuff. I hope you guys will check out his website. Make sure to go to hellboundthemovie.com. When you go there, not only can you watch the trailer and find out more about the movie and check out the Resource Center, but at the very top of the homepage, you're going to see a widget called Demand the Movie. Click that Demand the Movie link, and it will take you to a place that you can type in your zip code to actually request the movie come to your area. So let's get on board with this, guys. I would love to see Hellbound go all around the country, and I would love for us at Beyond the Box to be a part of that. I just think this is a great conversation for us to be having right now because like Kevin and I were talking about and like Steve and I have talked about so many times, this thing about hell goes so much deeper than a conversation about hell. This conversation is really about who God is. Who is God? Who is this person we call Father? This person that Jesus taught us to call Abba. Who is he? Can he be trusted? Is he all loving? Is he all good? And to me, while I know a lot of questions remain unanswered. I think we can give a very enthusiastic yes to all of those questions. And I think the ideas that we have surrounding hell really need to get at least some kind of answer in order to help us move beyond some of the really mean old guy in the sky type of thinking that we've had. So go to Kevin's website, check out hellboundthemovie.com. I think you guys are really going to like what you find there and make sure to demand the movie. Not only that, but tell your friends on Facebook about the movie. Go to facebook.com slash hellboundthemovie, which is the Hellbound Facebook page. Like that page. Share it with your friends. Tell them about this movie. Let's get some buzz going about this thing so that we can really get a good conversation started about this. <clears throat> and we can also help others who, you know, maybe maybe they've just completely become turned off to Jesus because they've only associated him with all of the traditional hellfire and brimstone type of teaching that we've heard. So I, I just see this as a great opportunity to really to really get people excited about God again, to find out that he is a good father. So let's do that. Let's get on board with this movie. I'm, I sound like a used car salesman. I really don't usually get this excited about things, but I tell you guys, since I found out about this movie, I can't stop checking out the Facebook page and uh, just looking at the resources that they're putting up. I just think it's great stuff. Kevin, thanks for what you're doing. Thanks for what your crew's doing. Just really look forward to being a part of it. To cook up with us, Stephen, Stephen, myself, um, we would love to keep this conversation going. We so appreciate you guys. I know I say this all the time. I might sound like a broken record, but I tell you, you guys are awesome. You've really become a community to us, a spiritual community, and I just value and treasure each one of you that I've interacted with. I'm getting to know some of you more and more, and I tell you, I just really enjoy our conversations online, on Skype, on email, all these different ways that we're getting to know each other. I really am enjoying it, and I want to keep that going. So if you have a comment on this podcast episode that you'd like to make, you can go to beyondtheboxpodcast.com. You'll see this episode posted. Just click the link for it and put in your comment, submit it. If you're a first-time commenter, that comment will automatically go um, to be approved by either Steve or I. But we check our email all the time, and we can usually get it up pretty quick for you. Um, and after you, it's been approved one time, you can comment as much as you like, and it never asks for that again. That's just to try and control spam on our end to keep our website from shutting down. Um, <clears throat> we'd also like to hook up with you on Facebook. That seems to be the best place that we that we can really connect with people and talk with people. 
because you can put just short answers to things and and short responses and and really converse there more than you can by any other means that I've found. So go to facebook.com slash beyond the box. That's our Facebook page. And feel free to put any kind of comment on there, any kind of conversation starter, any kind of question. We can't guarantee an answer because we're definitely not the answer, guys. But we sure do love interacting with you and dialoguing with you about these things. And at the end of the day, that's really what it's all about is a conversation. Um, Let's just figure this thing out together because together we have the mind of Christ. Um, You can can go to our Twitter feed, twitter.com slash podcast. That's where you can hook up and find out that uh, when the latest episodes are published. And one last way you can hook up with us is when you go to our website, beyondtheboxpodcast.com, you'll find a widget on the right-hand side of the screen that says Call Me. If you click that Call Me widget, type in your name and phone number and hit Submit, our answering service will actually call you back so that you can either make a comment, a suggestion, um, <clears throat> you can ramble about as much as you would like, <laughs> say whatever you want there. We just would love to hear from you. If you want the phone number, maybe you're riding in your car or on your on your treadmill or whatever, and you want to call and make a comment right now, you can dial 626-246-6269. That's 626-24-NO-BOX. And that'll hook you straight up to our voicemail. We just love to hear from you. We just want to connect with you guys. Really, really appreciate you guys. And Kevin, once again, I appreciate you being on the podcast. Look forward to talking more in the future. You guys have an awesome week, and we will come back at you soon.